0: hello everyone welcome back to bunga it's wednesday the 2nd of february i'm alex hokuley and i'm here as usual with philip cunliffe
1: hello
2: and george Hor hey There's clearly some uh, Rainbow Rhythms energy in the group this evening. There is. We're also Rainbow Rhythms. Um, This is the first
0: in an occasional series called Populist Interventions. And there'll be a couple of these uh, over the course of the year in which we talk to people who are doing things, not just thinking about them. And the first one you're going to hear right now is uh, with Malcolm Ceyuni of the Örebro party in Sweden. And uh, George Horror has been talking to him. So you're going to hear this interview that George does with him right now. And that will be followed up and we'll join you at the end of it uh, to have a bit of an after party to digest what we've
2: heard and uh, tease out some of the strands. So here's George talking to Malcolm. Yes, I'm really glad to be um, joined uh, today by Malcolm Cheney of the Ourobori Party. Uh, Thanks for for joining us, Malcolm. Thank you. So just to kick things off a little bit, and I guess we'll go into um, the party in a lot more detail, but could you just tell us a little bit about your um, political background and how you came to be involved in politics in, in Sweden?
3: I mean, once upon a time, I was a sort of well-known Swedish left-wing intellectual. And I'm sort of glad those days were behind me. Um, but me and Marcus sort of became politically radicalized or whatever, and um, And we joined the uh, youth wing of the Swedish left party. uh, And it's literally called the left party, Vänsterpartiet, which means the left party. Mm -hmm. And um, like for various reasons, we got sort of kicked out. And this had to do with us being sort of far leftists, I guess, and also a sort of power struggle over seats and control of the Congress and stuff like that. And so, I mean, I have a fairly conventional background, I would say, for like a lot of these fail-son middle-class radicals that right. just litter this society right now. Like, I'm not very um, um, out of place in that context. So, okay.
2: yeah. So just to, to pick up on, uh, you mentioned Marcus, and this is Marcus Allard, and so he's the, he's the leader of the Uruguay Party, right? Yeah. Cool um so you kind of alluded to it a little bit there getting uh, getting kicked out of the of the the left party um but what are the I'm not gonna say like what's the origin story um but what what are the sort of origins of the Urebro party like how did how did that you know what you just mentioned there sort of set this set this scene for this um I guess this decision um from you guys to to kind of set up this party and, and, and try and build it
3: well I mean, what happened was that in 2014, um, Marcus got kicked out of the uh, first the left party proper and then the youth wing. Um, and this was due to a conflict over um, parliamentary lists uh, rather than ideology. And at this point, um, starting a local party seems like a, I mean, it's something to do and and, and something has to be done Mm -hmm. and so it becomes sort of a default option in a way Um, and over time the sort of how how should i put this the the doctrinal uh, um building blocks of something new sort of fall into place but it's it's a sort of unplanned ad hoc measure at the beginning um and Mm. i think it gets like one percent of the municipal votes which is not enough to enter the um well like the municipal i can't remember what the word is in english but like you you can't actually
2: we actually have quite a few swedish listeners so you can use the swedish word it will add some exoticism to to us anglophone People who can't repeat Swedish words, let alone.
3: I guess. Anymore. I guess the closest translation would be the municipal council. So, right. the party doesn't enter the council on the first go around, which is 2014, uh, and then enters it the second time, which is 2018. Cool. But to sort of sum it up, it's we have this sort of we had this sort of wa- vague feeling that you know something was broken. And like, there needed to be a new model. Uh, but as with a lot of things in politics, um, you only sort of really learn uh, when you actually put your ideas into practice.
2: Yeah, very much so. So um, I guess before we kind of move into discussing some of the analysis that the, the party kind of is, is based on, um, which is, I think is is really interesting, um, I wanted, and the activities, obviously, the, the the practice that you just kind of alluded to. Could you sketch out for our listeners a little bit the sort of the, the, the background of, of Sweden or Swedish politics? I don't know how, if you can kind of put Swedish politics in a, in a nutshell or not. But um, yeah, just a bit of context, I think that would be would be pretty useful.
3: In some ways, I think Sweden is sort of different to to in comparison to the general trend in in Europe right now, but in a lot of ways, it's really not um, the the Swedish Social Democrats, which were kind of like this 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 whole notion that has been built up of the Swedish Social Democrats being the sort of um, mother load of social democracy is, has always been kind of dubious to me because um, that really was the German SPD mm. that served as the model and the Swedes um, imported it and then sort of perfected it and it helped th- that like Swedish social democrats weren't put in concentration camps by the Nazis so like that that really does
2: wonders for preserving your party structure. Yeah but- I mean the, just, just to jump in there the, I think the, exter- the external view from Certainly from the UK is that like s- Swedish social democracy was, you know, best in best in class. That was the one to kind of aspire to that kind of, you know, Scandinavian haven of of social democratic, uh, you know, wonders.
3: Yeah. And that used to be true in, in some sense. Um, but again, like it's it's kind of important to point out that this was just taking someone else's model and then perfecting it rather than adding some sort of special Swedish know-how to it and that special Swedish know-how I tend to think is overestimated by a lot of people outside of Sweden but but so we had this fairly um, accomplished model probably the best in its class and this has led to the Swedish social Democrats maintaining sort of a not really hegemonic position in politics, but a fairly dominant one still. Like right, we're still talking 40% of the
2: voting public voting for the Swedish social Democrats. And sorry, um, when, when, when is that, that sort of 30% that they're still right getting? Now. Okay. So then they, they haven't gotten, gone the way of the, uh, social democrats in the rest of Europe and just kind of no
3: um not really and this is the interesting point i mean 40% for the swedish social democrats is really bad like it sweden yeah. used to be a one party state um you know like the right existed but nobody took them seriously and you know you had 40 years of nearly uninterrupted social democratic rule And um, so 40% leads to a lot of trouble with like really awkward coalitions and stuff like that. So, Mm. but, but if you look at it like 30% compared to the rest of Europe, that's pretty damn good. So, so what are people complaining about? Well, as it turns out the sort of, this is a deceptive picture because the breakdown of social democracy is happening from the bottom up rather than the top down. So for the national parliamentary elections, you still get a fairly decent showing, even though 30% with the sort of parliamentary situation leads to like really self-destructive coalitions. Right. Um, but at the local level, what happens is that the social Democrats are losing their grip on the voting public one municipality at a time. And so what will happen is that the, um, Social Democrats, and this is due to sort of a class-based change that will surely cover a bit farther down the road. But the Social Democrats are more and more sort of prioritizing the big urban centers, which is not necessarily where the votes are. And this leads to a lot of cutbacks and, and downsizing and stuff in, in the hinterlands. And then at some point, the local political machine reaches a breaking point where, like, some really old timey social democrat um, godfather of the, of the municipality who knows everyone living in, it, in his city or town by first mm-hmm. name just says, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. I'm going to start my own party or just candidate, like, sort of be my own candidate. And then at that point, um, it's really hard for the Sweden Democrats to get, or social Democrats, sorry, to get back on the map. So again, like beneath the surface of, well, you know, things aren't that bad. The, um, the actual sort of fundam- fundamentals of, of social democratic power, like the, the contact with the um, rural base is being mm-hmm. destroyed.
2: No, I think that's a revealing picture, or one that I think that's that is important. That kind of hollowing out or bottom, you know, the the foundations crumbling. The kind of national level figures still looking all right, but the you know the 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 links with um, the hinterlands or the constituencies being being kind of eroded away. So if this is the kind of the picture of the the, the social democrats. Um, you mentioned the Sweden Democrats, and I think it'd just be useful to sort of, like, m- maybe bring the the picture up to the, the present day. Who are the who are the kind of um, the, the the challenges or the the kind of the parties or the, the movements that are getting a bit of of airtime in kind of Swedish political discussions?
3: I mean, the Sweden Democrats are obviously the name on the tip of everyone's tongue. And um, you have all of these sort of forced, tortured coalitions uh, designed to keep the Nazis at bay. This is not like serious. Um, The Sweden Democrats are a fairly interesting party. But the interesting thing is not like, are these people Nazis or super Nazis? That's just ridiculous. At this point, this party has more of the um, um, what's the sort of correct term for this? People born outside of, of Sweden, uh, which is which in Sweden we call um, eller utländs ursprung. So basically, if your origin is someone else, somewhere else than than, right. um, than Sweden, you vote for the Sweden Democrats more <laughs> regularly than you do for the Left Party. Right. It, the so so again. This is a party that's fairly strong among immigrants. Um, And they're pretty conflicted, I would say, because um, this sort of cordon sanitaire that's been erected around the the Sweden Democrats, which again, I often interpret as a way for the social Democrats and the left party in particular to um, really not have to face contradictions within their own political base right so you can just say that well all of these people living in the sticks voting for the sweden democrats they've just been infected by the racist virus and once someone is infected by that like we transition from materialist politics to something completely voluntary Hmm. so we're all good materialists in the left until someone becomes a racist because you know Hmm. some idea and then you can sort of ignore them because they don't fit the plan anymore. So they have been forced into the the growing sort of right-wing coalition though it's always been a sort of awkward fit because they n- don't really maintain any sort of anti uh, welfareist policies. Right. So so the They've yeah. been making real inroads into like the the
2: social democrat voting base. Hmm. So I guess just to kind of sort of summarise that, and then you know move on to talking about the Uppsala party. So you've got the the kind of the left, the the social democrats, the dominant force, the left party um, to the left. Um, yeah. So the Sweden Democrats and some other parties to the, to the right, and there's a there's a kind of discrediting of the Sweden Democrats that the. That the left party and the social democrats are, are, are putting forward mainly on the basis of their uh, attitudes to, 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 um, to kind of social attitudes, with obviously the, I would assume the kind of a contradiction or a difficult question to answer there about um, why is it that, that Im, the immigrants would be voting for the Sweden Democrats if they're a potentially quote unquote Nazi party? Is that more or less kind of workable as a as a picture? Yes,
3: I would say that there's some there's some an particular wrinkle to all of this that's sort of unique to Sweden or at least very pronounced in Sweden which is that there's a huge contradiction in this sort of ostracizing of the Sweden Democrats based on you know being anti-immigration and being racist because Sweden has extremely um, severe problems with gang violence but also sort of the beginnings of like ethnic violence, this sort of where where you know, like a 14-year-old Swedish boy or girl or whatever is kidnapped and then sort of tortured. Um they put the videos of you know doing cigarette torture and stuff up on whatever TikTok or something. And and you can just tell that like this violence isn't because oh well I need your phone or whatever. Like you have Money, I need it, like, hand it over. Like, there's some sort of other animus. And the the fact that Sweden has these problems means that, like, and and these problems, I should say, also hit the middle class almost disproportionately. Like, I think that if you're a sort of inner-city living person who has money to buy a designer jacket for your kids or whatever, like, you are much more in danger than some some random hillbilly out in the sticks. So what this problem leads to is that there's a, um, for the left, like they want to sort of ostracize the Sweden Democrats, obviously, but but also they don't really want to um, keep any sort of open borders policies or whatever going. So at this point, it sort of becomes a force of habit almost, which, again, it could be just like ideology driving this. But I think that a much better way to to view this is that even after the anti-immigration arguments have sort of run out of steam, nobody's enthusiastic about them anymore. The fact is that there's a latent class conflict here and that the Sweden Democrats are essentially at least they're perceived to be the party of of the um uh the periphery rather than the center and and mm. all of those periphery people are really scary and bad and they shouldn't be allowed to vote
2: yeah kind of basket of deplorables yeah um, exactly one one poet once put it um so i mean you, you sort of touched on this this idea of this kind of latent class conflict and this is one of the main things that i Sort of found interesting in in you know what what I what I know at this point about about the Urebro Party is like what is the what is the, the class analysis that's that the party's activities are, are grounded in what what sort of um, yeah material analysis is there that's going on to kind of inform the the activities.
3: I mean, as I said earlier, the the interesting thing about the left is that leftists are fair weather materialists. Like they have this Mott and Mm. Bailey um, view of of class relations shaping politics. So again, if it's something, if it's an argument that your priors sort of incline you to make. Well, obviously, the the argument is based on um, like material relations of production, blah, blah, blah. But then if something goes against whatever your priors are. It's just because people have willfully chosen to be stupid and/or racist and/or sexist and/or you know whatever phobic. Yeah, and um, this is especially true with this so-called culture war. Like whenever I hear someone use the term culture war as a way of explaining um, fundamental sort of shifts in politics, I-, I just know I'm not dealing with a very serious thinker because. Here's the thing, what's happening today in the West is that we have this huge sort of overproduced class um, Mm -hmm. of people who, to to sort of uh, speak Marxistly here for a second, like they're not members of the universal class because their relation to production is not one of selling their labor power uh, to someone who controls the means of production uh, who then exploits them. So what I mean by this is that if, you're, if you are dependent on an economic transfer, so again, take the most sort of egregious example of this. If you are some sort of consultant hired by the government to essentially sell fire insurance, uh, rainbow-colored fire insurance in this case, municipalities you basically come around and say nice municipality you have here would be a shame if anyone called you homophobic pay me 50 which happens by the way um like you are not really being exploited like the money that Mm -hmm. eventually gets deposited into your account is gathered up by the state not through um you know manufacturing widgets but rather by telling people um you have to pay this and this amount of tax if you don't we're going to put you in prison and so so like this is the remember like the basics of 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 this universal class stuff which is that the the proletariat has this interest in abolishing all exploitation because that's the only way presumably that they can abolish their own uh, exploited nature. Uh, Someone who lives off the state or through some sort of forced transfer does not have a a priori interest in abolishing exploitation
2: yeah so i mean is this is this would you say one of the central kind of political points that you would that you would make that there's i mean and tell me if i'm kind of boiling it down too much that there is there is a distinction between the class interests of workers and the class interests of people who uh, receive transfers either from the state or from uh, private foundations um and so and if you try and you can have a political project that um appeals to one group um, you can have a political project that appeals to, or purports to appeal to both groups but if it appeals to both groups then there's there is a contradiction there which is going to be central to whatever that um, that project tries yes, to do. Yes
3: that's certainly where we the conclusion we arrived at because at, at the beginning we were trying just as much as anyone else to explain the fact that For all its sort of vaunted um, aspirations, like the left has utterly failed to win over the working class. And and in fact, it is losing it at a pretty fast clip. All of these left, um, left populist projects, they just fail, like spectacularly. Either they go the way of the Bernie Sanders campaign, where you could arguably say that they... Collapse due to their internal contradictions, like mismanagement. Um, the fact that the the people that were in charge were just sort of working on their CVs for the Biden campaign, and they were unionizing in order to um, get the wage they deserved off of sure. you know donations of working class Americans. And you know Corbyn. Surely, like we don't really have to go into details there, like what a fucking clusterfuck that was. And yeah, we've, um, we've
2: we've talked about that quite quite a bit on on the podcast, so uh, listeners can just listen to pretty much any episode and yeah and hear hear what we uh, uh, what we think at least. But yeah, I mean, so is is this linked to that point you made earlier about I guess about culture wars that essentially if you see this as a um, as a cultural struggle and not as a kind of as a material. Uh, conflict over res- resources then you're, you're sort of you're taking the bait almost
3: yeah I mean the the cliff notes version of this is really that well in the west partly as a result of the strategies used to sort of deal with the which is we're, we're going to send everyone to college um, there are a lot of people who don't go manufacturing widgets or whatever like they're they they are not Necessarily being exploited. Um, and in fact, a lot of the time, their direct political interest, which is demonstrated in, in their action, consists of essentially trying to beg either, you know, billionaires or private foundations or the state to effect like greater and greater transfers to their own class. And in a, situation of, um, in a situation of like a stagnant economy, this becomes a zero-sum game. So you have people who are part of the productive economy directly, but they ultimately have to pay for every non-productive worker. And if these non-productive workers um, become like a significant portion of a society like they will ultimately try to formulate their own class program. And this is the interesting thing about the left is that everyone treats the fact that there are no workers left and everyone is this sort of podcaster, ideologue, fail on working at an NGO, working mm-hmm. at some independent media project, like, you know. There are a few. <laughs> like. Everyone just looks at this and uh, says, well, this is an interesting sort of cultural effect and uh, an interesting cultural quirk of this moment. Nobody ever says, well, this is an interesting class um, relation that everyone here has. And it's actually quite interesting that people of a fairly different sort of class relation are so off put with this crap. Mm -hmm. Like nobody really says, well, you know, maybe we are, maybe this is another area for actual class analysis. Because again, if you really do that, and if you like um, start opening that kind of worms, like there's no sort of formal Marxist argument for why someone who says, You know, I went to college, I deserve a good job, and the state should help me with this. There's no like Marxist argument for why that person necessarily has similar interests to someone living in a
2: um, deindustrializing town Mm -hmm. and um, is out of work. So I guess the I think because I think we could we could definitely talk about this for for quite a while but just one final point before moving sort of onto the 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 rubber parties so I mean is it is it essentially then that you the the way that this class analysis gets put into practice is that you've got some people whose I guess class position puts them in uh makes exploit and exploitation the thing that they're interested in and you have another group of people who's Are interested in i guess when they come to the market to sell their labor um interested in in transfers and and this is the sort of transferiat um and those two groups are essentially you know in conflict and you you pick one side um you can't pick both
3: yeah so the transferiat is a term it's a pretty ugly neologism, but we, we needed a sort of a term.
2: You've got, to, yeah, um, you've got to come up with the new, you know, if you, if you, if you have new, new ideas, new words, people, you know, that's, yeah. that's, that's your right if you, if you come up with it.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's like all of these sort of concepts are just tools anyway. And we kind of needed a tool to sort of describe people who can only reproduce themselves as a class if the um, transfers keep flowing. And so um, you see this a lot of the time in like the municipality I live in, Uppsala, um, has, I I don't even remember the figure. It's like 80 communicators hired by the municipality, 80 people whose job it is to uh, handle the social media accounts. And so when you go to like these people's office, like all they do every day is, literally just play world of warcraft and stuff like that. And then obnoxiously insert themselves into whatever process they can sort of parasitize on. So a friend of mine who is a teacher really hates these guys because now you can't even send out some sort of circular to parents at at his school without sending it to these bureaucrats who then say, well, you know, you have to change the, the, the font of the circular to, um, this and this because that's more in harmony with our recent font policy it's just mm. like ridiculous well, like
2: you know this this i guess is the is bureaucratic um logic to a certain extent as well once you have that um once you have that position is in your interest to to keep that to, you know to to expand your expand your power and your control within within yeah, those institutions. I
3: guess I guess for that the people sense. I guess for the people managing that department it makes sense to sort of say oh well I need to hire 50 more people because you know yeah this exactly. Twitter account with 2000 followers it really can't handle itself but but for all of these people who are all like college educated it's a jobs program. Mm. Like these people are hired like 80 of them or so. They're hired at a much higher wage than like any random nurse at the local hospital. And again, um, without these sorts of jobs programs, like these people would be working at Starbucks. And I very well remember when Corbyn sort of lost, going into sort of subreddits for, for labor fans and so on in the UK, and people saying openly stuff like, you know. I did everything right. I went to college, I got good grades, and I'm still working at Starbucks. Why can't these stupid racist workers understand that this, this is a crime? Mm. The fact that I have to work alongside the workers is a real problem that the working class movement needs
2: to address. Yeah, I mean, this a lot of what you've been, been saying, um, obviously I'm sort of thinking about it in terms of the you know, my own positionality or, or basically like the, the British context and it, you know, a lot of, a lot of um, bells being rung, let's, let's put it that way. Um But I guess in terms of, if, if that's, if that's like the the analysis, how do you put it into practice? Like what, what is the, what is the Euroborough party doing um about this? I, I guess one, one question I did want to ask, maybe just to make it a bit more concrete for, for the listeners is what's the kind of typical or party supporter or activist. Like, what's where do they come from? What's their class background? Um, why do they want to get involved? Like, what what motivates them, and what sort of why why do they feel like the existing parties aren't good enough or aren't sufficient for for what they want to do?
3: Well, okay, I'll, one question at a time, I think.
2: Uh, Sorry, you so, can you so... can you can pick from. <laughs> there was quite a few there, so pick them, do them in whichever order you yeah. think is uh, best.
3: So what this sort of class analysis means when translated into practical politics. Well, I mean, it's not that complicated in in a lot of ways, because again, given the analysis we've sort of walked through that there is this conflict over resources between people who can only reproduce themselves by essentially forcing um, other people to foot their bill, forcing other people to sort of subsidize transfer payments our class politics or or party program um, really centers around stopping these people from doing that,
2: which is um... yeah. Could you give an, an example? What do you what, what do you mean? I mean, I think I might have some some idea, but it would be good to just just hear what what does this involve? Stopping them getting their hands on on transfers. I mean.
3: Um... <sighs> There's so much stuff of this, like so much graft going on in, in your average municipality in Sweden, but it's not even called graft because it's um, again, it's the right class doing it. So in, in, in Uppsala, I already sort of uh, talked about the example of um, us having essentially funding like 80 full time positions for something that, you know, you could do with one part-time position and you could hire, I don't know, 79 and a half nurses instead, right? So that sort of program, just like fire these 80 people and hire 80 nurses instead is one example. Uh, And in general, I think that we we tend to sort of look at issue after issue in terms of like who benefits and who has to foot the bill. So if a new sort of program or, um, like Sweden is sort of overrun with all of these sort of synthetic civil society, uh, organizations who subsist of, of state or local money. And, um, a lot of these projects that the municipality sort of undertakes also tends to be like jobs programs for for um, n- relatives of, of politicians who, you know, yeah. went to the right sort of schools, let's just say. And so pushing back against all of that, um, essentially um, giving political power back to normal working class people insofar as their own sort of wishes and desires should be what guides the economic and political priorities of a municipality. Like that's pretty much our program.
2: Um, And that sounds like a pretty sort of traditional socialist program. I mean, of a, of, of a sort, but I'm, I would assume that, or maybe I'm wrong to assume that that's not the way it's been, it's been taken if that would even indeed be the way that you would describe it yourself
3: oh no i mean everyone sort of calls this fascist um worse than fascist and it's actually quite interesting we sort of split with the um with the left over questions of sort of you know open borders and stuff like that but in retrospect those questions were never particularly important. Like that was never the real reason. Because again, um, it's very easy with the, um, with things being as they are to attack someone saying, well, we shouldn't have open borders as you know, beyond the pale racist. And you can put a like a leftist, pigeon Marxist spin on that. Like if you don't want open borders, you don't want like the unity of the workers of the world. So you are a reactionary and Lenin warned us about the swamp. Like you can do that pretty, f- pretty easily. But <sighs> there's no good way to uh, spin the um, supposition of a class conflict that in, in the manner that we present, as being, you know, fundamentally like anti-Marxist, anti-whatever. So at this point, people just say, um, either pretend that we don't exist, but that this happens less and less as we become more and more Mm. politically relevant. And more that like, you can't even discuss these people, like their ideas. This is just, you know,
2: liquid Nazism or whatever. Liquid Nazism. That's... uh that's a kind of a um, weirdly compelling it doesn't have any meaning but a weirdly compelling phrase yeah I mean so, i mean it's, it's basically what you're saying here that the the kind of that relationship with the the left is is complicated considerably by if you're if you're putting forward a material analysis then the um, kind of like a marxist critique of that is is quite tricky <laughs> to the extent that you know you you can't just resort to Um, kind of an idealist critique um, without kind of, I guess, abandoning the idea that you're still doing a Marxist critique.
3: Well, well, no, exactly. Because again, the the core problem that every leftist has to face is that they have a a movement consisting of one class of people pretending that the fact that it's only this class of people has no bearing at all uh, on their class politics. Hmm. Um, And again, like if you say, well, yes, it does. And actually, um, we are interested in a class politics for the working class, like for, um, if you excuse this profane sentence for ordinary taxpayers, um, then uh, what happens is that like these people have just given up. like they they don't really have any sort of critique or anything. It's just we're bad and scary and fascist. and if you're a real leftist, like you don't associate with us, which is great for us because we are not leftists. And um, this ties into your earlier question about sort of the typical um, party activist, yeah. voter and so on we considered it to be the the sort of, like an incredible breakthrough when we completely stopped getting applications from from people in and off the left. At this point, like the people that want to join us are either, you know, some sort of like passive, uh, like right-wing voters, like they used to vote for the moderates and they haven't voted. And um, now they're voting for us or people who are sort of like workers who are um, dissatisfied with the Social Democrats, let's just say, and and consider the Social Democrats to have abandoned their mandate. So this activist class, which you uh, know exactly what I'm talking about here, we don't have any of those. Hmm. And we have a fairly sort of elaborate screening process. Like, if you want to become a member, it's not you don't have to. It's not as simple as filling out a form. Um, you sort of have to fill out the form um, at the beginning. I have to do a written application, but after that, you sort of have to come to a um, verbal interview, and then if you pass that stage you can come to some like introductionary sort of educational courses. And once that stage is over, you can start doing like help with party work. And if that works out, you can become a full-time member. So it's more yes. like joining a either a very old-style party or <laughs> a motorcycle
2: gang. Okay. Do, do new members get a, a jacket? Uh, no,
3: they don't. No? Okay. Well... Though, actually, um, actually, there was a huge sort of controversy last election because um, one of our sort of electoral posters (laughs) had um, like one of the uh, sort of um, one of the party members holding... Two people by the ear, and they had these like motorcycle jackets, and one jacket said like Social Democrats, and and one jacket said like Moderates, and, and this caused a huge ruckus because like oh these evil populists are comparing like politicians to criminals and so on. So I mean, mm. the the motorcycle jackets do figure into the Arabu <laughs> Party lore, okay. let's just say.
2: Okay, that's good to it's good to know. So in terms of I guess the party organisation, so you sort of said touch on that, it's quite an arduous, well, not arduous, that's the wrong word, but it's, it's you know quite a formal process to to kind of become to become a member. Um, like what's the how, how's the party organised? Because I think one thing that's, you, you mentioned populism, um, one thing that I think has been quite characteristic of some recent parties take. Um, The Brexit Party, for example, in in the UK, which, you know, is a good example of a specific sort of populist party, is that there is basically nothing between the members and the the leader, the hyper leader, if you will. Um, And so you have this kind of um, what seems like a fairly, you know, large, um, numerically sort of grand party. But actually, there's no sort of party democracy. There's there's no sort of interaction between the members it's just you pay your dues and you get a, you get a kind of um you get an attachment that way i mean is that the way that the euro party set up or how's what's the what's the you know the purpose of recruiting and training new members in this way how does that how does this all fit in as another so i've done it again another several questions so just pick your your favorites and answer them in whichever order you would like
3: I mean that's an that's an interesting question because you you mentioned the Brexit party where you can become a member and sort of pay your dues and it's just being used by someone and you really don't have any sort of control over it. Yeah. I mean the Aurebro party is definitely set up to avoid that. In the sense that like you can't just send in a check or whatever like and then have like a label pin or whatever saying that you're a member like it's an involved process to become a member specifically because um in our analysis you really do need a sort of to build a new like working class cadre you have all of these sort of activists, serial podcasters, NGO members, and so on. And like in in terms of sort of
2: these podcasters are getting a bit of a hard ride. I mean, it's justified, but I just wanted to to to, to let you know that was well. That was I mean, noticed. I
3: tells it like it is, partner. Yeah, sure. yeah. Um, but but like you have this sort of greater activist class of the sort of overproduced elites, and you know like these people aren't sort of disciplined Bolsheviks or whatever, but, but they do know how to fight for their own class interests. Um, and again, the, uh, the point of the party is basically to sort of um, bring forward or train a um, similar sort of cadre that can actually like do real work not just in Odebro, but like in the rest of the country. But as far as sort of personalist, uh, um, like governing structures, I think that's pretty much unavoidable um, at the start of a party. Mm. Um, And it's it's sort of unavoidable in a sense because um, like bureaucracies have overhead. And the smaller you are, the less room for overhead you have. But this is also complicated by another factor, which is, which is pretty interesting. And this ties into how I described the political situation in Sweden beforehand. So you have all of these, um, like you have this social democracy that is standing fairly tall nationally, but locally it's being sort of destroyed in, in municipality after municipality. You have, um, as a consequence, quite a lot of um, um, of localist parties right. in different municipalities, and so the idea of the Aurebro Party, in some ways, is to act as, and again, like excuse my old timey Leninist language here, to act as the most sort of advanced segment of that new movement. Mm. And at this point, like it's the the sort of stresses of actually having to uh, bring forth a new model um, and do a lot of trial and error means that, like, we're not particularly interested in sort of telling other parties what to do, for example, um, which again would that would be a pretty productive step at some point to sort of have like all of these parties coming together, working together under some sort of formalized like internal democratic structure. But at this point you, you kind of have like this almost called um mm-hmm. like warlord situation where um, individual leaders sort of um, try their own hand at party building and the, the, um the lessons of, of like what works, what doesn't works,
2: what doesn't work is sort of passed around and so on. So to to so there's a there is a kind of uh, or maybe I'm reading too much into what you're saying, but there is a kind of an, a national aspiration there. Like the local level is is not a kind of um, localist kind of focus on the the mun- municipalities so much as a kind of like pragmatic this is the training ground where people yeah. can get experience in practical politics you can build your you can build your your party of, of people who who have who have that experience and um eventually kind of link to the to the national level i think i mean i guess just again from the kind of british perspective the i think this is an it is an important sort of question or at least to my mind it is because i've i definitely thought around the brexit process the Kind of retreat from the national level was pretty characteristic of the, um, you know, the, of a more general ruling class strategy to paint the domestic working class in, in as a whole as work as racist, you know, ignorant, xenophobic, and then, you know, you either retreat to supranational institutions like the EU or to kind of like local um, pockets of of radicalism, like um, maybe left-leaning municipalities like London or Manchester. Um, and so the the I mean is is would you share that kind of basic approach that it's, eventually it's an it's a kind of a national I don't want to say national populist because that's a horrible phrase and actually not accurate but would you say it's a national you know there's a national project kind of lurking there somewhere eventually Oh yes
3: definitely I mean here's the thing so so you have the Our Party which itself is not like the biggest of these localist parties. Um, in terms of like raw voting totals, or um, in terms of you know like the the sort of um, the proportion of, of the votes in a particular municipality, like there's one party called the uh, Independent Realists, um, Ooh. who strong name, yeah, they sort of came from nowhere, and you know they. This is sort of the, the instructive example of just how like these social democrats are being silently like killed from the b- below. They more or less came from nothing. Um, and, and you had some sort of so oh really old social democratic politician who was disgusted by the way like social democrats nationally had forgotten about like these the hinterlands. And he sort of Went out in search of someone to pa- pass on his mantle, and he endorsed um, a particular guy. I can't really remember. I can't remember his name now. Who became the party leader for this independent realist party? Right. And they got forty-five percent of the vote. And here's the thing: um, they've actually sort of ruled their municipality now for um, f- quite a few years without any problems. And this is because their sort of strategy for recruiting people to staff offices is that they aren't reliant on this like, this class of activists. Instead, they go to people um, who can have a pretty long career of civil service, but, but like, they're basically recruiting, promoting people from the ranks. Right. going to someone who's worked like for the police or whatever for for a long time and saying like you know you could never advance because you have the wrong ideas politically and you're not friends with the right people but like we know you're competent like could you help us
2: actually govern so and uh, it's just sorry just to just to clarify something so is in terms of the kind of the government the structure of government of of sweden is there a do you have real power at the municipal level like there is there is something to 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 play for you can have a a a, a sort of genuine power base you talked about warlords before but like you know what, what what can you do and what can't you do um at the municipal level i mean you can do
3: quite a lot actually um a lot more than people think okay um because and this this holds true in pretty much every sort of context with with local politics in that like the the level of implementation tends to be the local level for for most of society's functions regardless of uh, your particular sort of western country Um, sweden is a fairly extreme example of this like it's not a federated state it's not like the U.S., where a particular state is basically a min- mini country government with its own like <laughs> legislative yeah. and judicial branch. But at the end of the day, to to give people an idea of sort of how this works, the the there's a huge amount of latitude for municipalities, partly because. Um, Sweden has been a one-party state for so long so there was never really any sort of need to formalize um, uh, right. the sort of bar the the border no need to, to... No
2: need to s- sort of centralize power so much because the um, social Democrats were so dominant throughout the country you mean
3: yeah partly that but also to co- codify in law exactly what sort of competence the state has in, right. in relations okay. to a municipality. So, so for schools, for example, um, what the the law basically says is that municipalities should run schools. That's it. Okay. There's no sort of like you have to run a school these many days per year and um, in this sort of building, and you have to do use this and this curriculum and have so many teachers. It's just you should run schools. And it's left up to, like, the local um, authorities to interpret, mm-hmm. like, how and why and so on. And and this goes, um, this holds true uh, on area to area. So one of the recent controversies has been regarding, um, like, Sweden has a problem with sort of radical Islamists. And, you know, you have these people running schools because Sweden has a fairly sort of free market schooling system, which is a, a disaster. And, and the group party has been at the forefront of basically saying like that these radical Salafists should not run schools in our municipality. And everyone says, well, that's not really what we can uh, um like, that's not our problem. Like, we're just a municipality. The state has to handle this. But in actuality, uh, the municipality controls the certification process for these schools. So even though a municipality can formally close schools um, for whatever reason, like, that's up to the, the, the school board or, or the school department of the state. Uh, if a municipality wanted it could just say, like, we're going to put this uh, certification in administrative limbo and there's nothing you can do about it. And there's nothing the state really can do about that. Um,
2: Yeah. So, so. I mean, I think that is an important sort of bit of of context, actually, because I think the... I mean, reflecting on schools in, in, you know, in the UK at least, it's very, you know, you've got a national curriculum, it is quite it is quite centralized, which which I guess has a very different set of of incentives and you know leads to a kind of different sort of conflict over over schools, education and, and all and everything like this. But I you know, just to kind of I guess get into the the trajectory of the party since since twenty fourteen. So um, you know, set up in this place called Örebro, which is may or may not be how you, you know, you pronounce it, which is a municipality in uh, central Sweden, which is just west of of Stockholm. Um, And so, you know, what, what, how would actually just ask a question, how would you sort of describe the, the trajectory of the party since the formation in 2014? And do you think it's been, you know, you think it's been a a success or what sort of surprised you in that, in that kind of um, in that period?
3: I mean, it's, I think it's been a fairly tremendous success, actually. Like what people will say sometimes is that, oh, well, you only have a couple of thousand votes. It's uh, like you're completely irrelevant, like my trot sect or DSA or whatever is like a hundred times bigger. But that really sort of um, evades the central point here, which is that the Arab group party was founded um, as... Um, a not necessarily some sort of hippie, you know, localist, you know, national politics. It's all just gammon pigs. Like we should just retreat to our own little enclaves kind of deal. Um, it, It was actually founded as a sort of training school for
2: like political cadres, because again, um, and, and- with, with that kind of explicit, that kind of level of explicit kind of, um, uh, I, I don't know what the word would be, sort of seriousness or like, because that's, I mean, that's quite, I would say that's probably quite an unusual sort of starting point for a, for a party, as far as well, I, as far as ones that I can think of recently.
3: Well, I mean... I should say like in 2014, that picture wasn't very clear, but like in 2016, then yes. And, and um, so like, I, I guess if you're being, if we're being completely honest, like the, the, we were sort of at cross purposes or whatever, like when the party was founded, it didn't really have that much of a, a conscious plan, just a couple of um, deeply felt sort of political instincts that then Matured into this sort of cadre training model. Yeah. But yes. Like very early on, this was one of the express purposes of it, and not just like training cadre, but also being a sort of wind tunnel or or tra- testing ground for for a new form of class politics, almost. And and in those uh, respects, it's gone incredibly well, and it's also um, been been a sort of um, um a seed from which other sort of local parties has germinated so it's not just our bro party that exists today but there's been like several half a dozen or so other parties that have been started on a similar model at this point point. and then there's um different localist parties including the independent realists who are more or less like loosely affiliated or like somewhat cooperative with the the group party. So um, in terms of building a much wider national movement, um, it's gone very well considering the very short amount of time. The, The 2014 election, the party was essentially started like six months before that. So almost missed a deadline on the paperwork. Um, and like no money no resources no nothing so like that more or less doesn't count but I think that even on the local level I think that the um, it's not really unrealistic in fact I think it's fairly probable that the party will at least like double maybe even triple its voting share from like three percent to nine ten percent so in terms of In 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 terms of the national project, it's going very well. Mm. And and people are getting sort of impatient going, like, when are you gonna when can I vote for you? I don't live in Aribru, but I really want to vote for you. Like, when will you come to my municipality? Or even better, when will you become a national party? And the answer to those questions is like that will happen when the infrastructure is in place.
2: Right. And by infrastructure, you mean the resources to 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 operate at the national level um which you know i mean that seems seems sensible i mean because i I did have a question like what's what's coming next but you kind of just just about answered that is that the next goal of the party you know collect collect enough kind of um activists kind of build that build those those kind of train those cadres and then kind of look to become a national party? Or is that, was that kind of, cause that, when you actually put it like that, it's quite a, it's quite a big aspiration. Um, You know, I hope you don't mind me saying it's quite, you know, quite ambitious for, for any, you know, political movement that's started less than a decade ago. I mean, do you think it's, do you think that's realistic? Is, I mean, is, is that the extent to which the class analysis resonates with, with, with people?
3: Yes. I mean, I don't think that, I think that the national aspirations, if all you really want to want is to get into parliament, like that's actually, that's not that difficult if you have um, some grit and if you're not a complete dofus, like it's, it's not the easiest thing in the world, but it's not a like, you know, almost superhuman task either. So in some sense, yes, like the national level is definitely a step that's, that we're hoping to take. But also what's more important to my mind is given that like our analysis essentially says that what's killing the Social Democrats is that, sure, even if they have a lock on power in, in Stockholm, if you don't really control the... Uh, the, the political machine at the local level, um, you really don't have much sort of power of implementation um, in in reality. And so the point here is in some ways to actually, it's it's easy to cast our politics as one of some sort of resentment against, I don't know, pink haired college grads, whatever. And, you know, pink haired college grads are a very, a very appealing target to attack. Nobody likes them. And insofar as they sort of demand protection money or like fire insurance payments from municipalities, like they're they're just parasites. But, and this is a pretty big but, um, the the transfer of power away from elected politicians to an unelected class of functionaries of which um, pink-haired college grads are just a sort of really obnoxious new uh, um, aspirant into. Like, this is actually one of the biggest problems today. Mm. The fact that people living in Arebro have very little real um ability to influence their own policies because even if they vote for say the left party um the left party is going to hand everything all the decision making over unless it's just pork barrel politics for their own sort of cousin consultants they're going to hand it over to these unelected
2: bureaucrats yeah like and and presumably also have um their party machineries hollowed out as they have been in the past few decades. Yeah. Um centered in, in Stockholm. So there's a there's a there's a regional, there's a class displacement, and that's you know, that disempowerment that is core to understanding contemporary you know politics in Europe and, and beyond.
3: Yeah, I mean, like when we look around today, we don't see the working class sort of being bamboozled by a culture war, which saps their political energies and saps the political energies from the left-wing activist class, who rather than fighting at the barricades, uh, uselessly talk about Latinx or, or some other new sort of term, the Jew that everyone hates, no like there's actual class struggle going on today. There's there's intensifying class conflict over resources. When the major of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot goes up and says, you know, we've actually declared uh, racism to be a new public health crisis. So we're going to take $10 million away from like our COVID fund and give it to anti-racist activists. Like the culture war is not the horse. It's the cart. The horse is the money being shifted away from one group of people to another group of people. And again, it really proves that old saying that you can't really convince someone of something if their entire wage depends on, upon yeah. them not getting that, it, that the left will look at these uh, huge monetary transfers and say, wow this is such idea like why did everyone become so idealist
2: Hmm. i I mean yeah i think this is a um yeah a point that i it took me quite a while to really get my head around like what if it's all class struggle What if it's all what if it's not really a culture war it's all material politics um which obviously is a kind of embarrassing thing to say given that you know you talk you talk about Marxism, and then it's like, oh yeah, actually that's probably like a starting yeah, I mean, point. It, how do you how do you end up forgetting that? It's
3: it's 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 such an open secret, too. I listened to your episode on um with Anton Jager about the, the the like end of populism or whatever it was called. And yeah. you know, Jaeger just says openly that like everyone really hoped for a job in the Corbin administration. And like, that was a big part of the, the, the like, enthusiasm behind all of that. And then Corbyn sort of face plants, because apparently, um, like the working class was, you know, gammon pigs who are stupid, but they weren't stupid enough to fail to notice this sort of class aspect of it and then it's just like oh well you know it's pretty cynical but also i i sympathize with these guys because you know who wouldn't do that and yeah. and it's like yeah okay well it's no problem to just say well i'm a college graduate and and i think i deserve this sort of class pr- position and you know the evils of capitalism means i can't reproduce that class position but Again, I think the left would actually be more effective if it just sort of admitted that openly. Like, we are the movement. We are a class project for a particular historical class rather than just try to pretend to be something it wasn't.
2: Yeah, I mean, this, I think, is... is things have become clearer. I mean, I would, would be my sort of conclusion in, in the past, in the past few years on, on these sorts of points that you, there's only so long you can, you can sort of put, put forward certain material interests without, without, you know, people starting to, to, to notice that. Um, and particularly people who, you know, who, who should be analysing politics through a material lens. Um, But just, just in terms of, you know, maybe like a final question to, to, to just wrap, wrap it up. I mean, do you, do you see there are, Uh, do you see any other sort of parties with a similar a similar sort of analysis or similar sort of activities um elsewhere in europe because i i think you know one of the the ideas of this this series is to try and like look at some of the the not just within europe sorry i should say to our listeners outside of europe europe isn't the whole world um like anywhere in the world do you see any any sort of parties doing something similar because that's that's one of the things we want to kind of Like have a bit of a look at in this series is what is it that you know some of the these newer parties are actually uh, doing. I mean, we we
3: have already gotten some like actual sort of inquiries from from other countries. And this is even at the point where the Rebro Party is pretty obscure in 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 the sense that there's very little written about it um, that's not in Swedish. Um, it's pretty, I would say that like most Swedes know of the Örebro party today, like it's actually fairly well known like nationally, but it's unknown outside the country. But even so, there there have been people going like, you know, this is a pretty interesting model. Do you have any sort of tips? Uh, how could I build this? Like some people have actually asked from, from the UK too. Um, I can't remember their names right now, but. Um, regarding whether there are other parties following this model. None that I know of, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's already sort of political actors thinking in these terms. The closest you really approach this sort of class analysis is, is within some segments of the right. And, and the right is, you know, it has its problems, but one of the problems it, it doesn't have as much anymore is a lot of people whose entire salaries depends upon them not actually uh, having any sort of class analysis that would hit too close to home yeah. so this sort of um, political dichotomy between a class of mandarins and a the people who through like state mandated transfers have to uh, pay for their own re- the, the reproduction of the mandarin so that is becoming a, a a lot more uh in vogue with certain parts
2: of of the right that's, but, that's but un, unevenly. That's a, yeah um, that doesn't entirely surprise me i think um Pete Ramsey made the point of, around brexit that you know the, the conservatives had had a pretty solid class analysis, um, eventually. Um, and you know, La- labor maybe never really did. Um, and the there's, you know, there's, there's good reasons for that. Actually, when you look at the, I guess the the personnel and the, the incentives of the different, the different parties, but, um, yeah, I mean, is there anything else just, it's, I think it's been ex- extremely, extremely informative. Um, anything else that you'd, you'd want to add? Um, yeah, maybe a final it reflection
3: yeah. here actually um, and this ties into your question regarding how I sort of perceived the um, progress that the party has made in, in, in like the seven years it's been in existence the, back when I was a part of the left um, and surely like you are not a stranger to this feeling uh, you know, the the general sort of sentiment was one of being a permanent loser, like you'd have all of these, you know, oh, serious size coming. Oh, my God, Corbin. Oh, my God, Bernie Sanders. Even though by those two, I was sort of already... Uh, Council. The enthusiasm
2: has maybe dimmed.
3: (laughs) Yeah, but even so, like you, you were kind of like a a a beaten dog, trained in helplessness, because like you never really expected any of your projects to sort of succeed. All of them just failed for various reasons. Nobody could really explain why, and if you actually tried to explain why, you would get into a lot of trouble if you sort of um, touched the far rail. With both hands and you know being outside of the left that's that's the first time uh, to where i finally felt that um you know felt the taste of winning and it's actually it's actually pretty nice it's actually pretty nice to sort of Uh, not have to live according to all of these sort of lies and all of these open secrets that you can't talk about because then you'll get cancelled by some twitter mob or whatever and instead say that like class struggle is actually happening and there is a conflict between like the productive classes and the non-productive classes right who and and you can actually like your actions matter and you can actually experiment and and build new models and they can actually succeed. Not in some, you know, we sold 10, 10 more of our Trotsky's newspaper bull crap, but actually sort of uh, grow into a real political movement. So yeah, I mean, hmm. being outside
2: as really like turn, turn things around. So I mean, that's what we've been talking about throughout the whole conversation. Is is how you kind of put that analysis into into practice, or put the analysis that you have, and you know, if if it if it works, that is, you know, speaks to the strength of the analysis, perhaps. Um, But yeah, winning outside the left, that's that's hmm, something for for, I think uh, uh, listeners to have a have a bit. You, You
3: know what they say, George? Though cowards flinch and traitors sneer that's the the line in the old song goes that's
2: yeah that's that's kind of have
3: you how you have to live
2: yeah no no um no no flinching but no i think there is there is you know what we i guess what we really didn't talk about is some of the kind of the flack um that that well we sort of touched on it some of the flack that i think you know this sort of analysis tends to tends to attract but that's that's probably a conversation for a for another sort of another, you know, another venue, but um, yeah, no. So just to say, thanks. Thanks so much for your time. That was, I think really, yeah, as I said, really informative and um, a lot of food for thought um, I hope for, for all our listeners. So yeah, Malcolm, thanks very much. Thank you for having me. Hello,
0: we're back. It's Alex, Phil and George, and we're here to digest what we've heard in this after party. George,
2: uh, you did the interview. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, I think the um, it, it's for, it's clear that this is a very serious project. I don't think Malcolm necessarily uh, online or on Twitter always comes across as the most sort of serious uh, poster, probably by his own admission. But I think the you know the time horizon of this this project and you know what it's trying to achieve it's, you know, very serious and, and impressive. I would say one thing which really struck me is that it's a, definitely, a, you know, it's a, an attempt to formulate a working class project and articulate class interests specifically in opposition not to the capitalists or whatever some of these older uh, kind of terms, the bosses, but the the PMC, the petty bourgeoisie, the managerial overclass, um, the kind of, you know, the middle class, um, middle classes. So I think that is an interesting um, aspect of the the euro parties project at this point in time.
0: Yeah, I found that intriguing. I'm um, not entirely convinced by it insofar as, I mean, on the one hand, I'm I, the first thought that came to mind actually relatively early in the interview is how big is this transfer yet? You know, um, are we, how, how much kind of social weight does it have? Because I'm, I'm no doubt have large, you know, sections who are dependent on the state in Sweden. And which is interesting because normally when you talk about people dependent on the state, you mean the unemployed, effectively the long-term unemployed. Um, but here specifically, I mean, I totally am, I am on board with that analysis that there's all these people working in municipalities selling crap to the government, you know, communications experts or whatever. Um, but I wonder how significant that is. Um, and there's a follow-on from that, which is, it seems to suppose or, or introduce a sort of squabbling over limited budgets. So it, it, there seems to be an element to which it's like, okay, well, the state, you know, through te- general taxation is then ha- redistributes this money for jobs, for middle-class people, for an overproduced elite. Okay, fine. But it seems to then suggest that politics is in a conflict over state budgets like this, um, which isn't, uh, I mean, it seems, seems which to Which I accept, think he's accept, clear accept, it is. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But, I mean, that seemed to me, that was dick, not a point of political principle, um, so much as dictated by the structure of the Swedish state. The fact that the there is, even though it's, as he said, it's not federal, there is significant latitude for, um, or significant autonomy at the municipal level, and also that the base of the Social Democrats is eroding municipally, and that there's lots of these new political forms springing up, and therefore it offers an opportunity. So I don't think there was... I mean, I don't think he was over overstating what was happening. I suppose my my thought is that the um, I'm not sure it was squabbling either. I mean, it seemed like it was more blocking the or trying to pull the these kind of parasitic managerial this kind of parasitic managerial class off the state teat rather yeah. than kind of squabbling over budgets exactly. Um, so. You know, and I don't really, you know, like you said, I mean, if there's 80 communications consultant on the local council's um, Twitter account and they're taken off and the that is redirected to, you know, 80 more nurses, I don't think I have a problem with that. It doesn't no, seem no, to, absolutely not, to no. be, you know, kind of a petty squabble over just over, st- over municipal budgets. I mean, so my broader question, I suppose, which comes to me from it is, you know, it's trying to... Politically articulate working class interests as distinctively working class and separate from other social groups The PMC in this case in particular But I don't know whether or not that, you know, whether or not it makes sense to Politically to articulate that a socialist and perhaps it doesn't in the contemporary context Given how that discourse is so monopolized by the left Who is targeted as the political enemy in this context um, and I'm not it's not to say that I'm have a clear answer to this I'm only raising it as to what is the you know what is the name for a working class politics that is distinctively in that distinctively advances the interests of the working class and traditionally that was socialism you know of various kinds that was socialism and now effectively, if you talk about socialism, what you're talking about is essentially, Given the fact that they're migrating to populists, the Swedish Democrats in the case of um, Sweden, then, you know, when you talk about socialism, what you're talking about is the grifter class that um, that Malcolm talks about.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a good it's a good point as to whether the <clears throat> political vocabulary that we have needs needs updating, and it's it's a sign of, I would say, a lack of political representation across across Europe and wider that. This idea that like, yeah, you, you you want to talk, what's the word for a political project which articulates working class interests as distinctively working class? It can't be socialism. That's that is a pretty striking kind of historical observation that this um, <clears throat> kind of political tradition, you know, one of the great political traditions of modernity, like now seems to have lost its its class base or even be opposed to it In you know in in some readings and i think that's you know that's the in some ways one of the the big challenges that things like brexit particularly or trump to maybe a lesser extent have have highlighted is like where is the political representation of of working class interests and you do have this class which is Probably numerically quite small, or maybe ten percent of the population, the managerial upper class. That's what Michael Lind um, judges it at. But so, but socially or politically, you know, it has a has a large amount of importance, and particularly in disciplining working class people um, politically and and culturally. So there is a I think there is a real a real cleavage there between those two classes, which can be you know can be addressed politically, and that's I guess that's the the wager of the Ourobro, um project.
1: I was impressed, I have to say, by his political seriousness. So, you know, the lack of not overclaiming. So like all the grifters who say, like, you know, fully automated luxury communism under Corbyn, Bernie's going to bring about socialism rather than just being a get out the vote kind of project for Hillary, you know, and he's kind of very limited. It's building up a cadre kind of um, building up political representation for the working class is essentially the project. Um, And the seriousness of the party kind of, I was quite taken with his, um, the detail he gave of how the party recruits. So all of that, you know, I mean, um, I was impressed, you know, even though I'm not sure I'm entirely convinced by the project, though this is obviously at a distance from outside of Sweden and not having, uh, you know, not having a better grasp of Swedish politics. But notwithstanding that, um, you know, I was uh, impressed by that, uh, by the self-consciousness. Um, And the experimental kind of character of the project. Where I would, I think, depart from him is I think he underestimates the irrationality of the groups that the group that he confronts, um, call them the PMC. Because, you know, so he sees all of this as, um, you know, kind of basically it's all it's fairly rational. It's the rational. So when the grifters come and they kind of shake down local municipalities by tacitly kind of blackmailing them or threatening them with the prospect of some kind of uh, lawsuit or propaganda about their lack of um, lack of diverse lack of diversity and so on. I think he under. I don't think that the the woke ideology can be so clearly read off their economic interest. It seems to me to be more irrational and to speak to um, the the difficulty that the PMC find themselves in. So it's not simply ideology in the service of a kind of self conscious shakedown. And I think that was overstated. Um, and it seems to me it serves larger purposes than simply carving out, you know, car- seizing resources from the state. Um, and in particular, that it serves, it's very effective for dissolving democratic majorities. There's an anti-democratic mm. component to it that's politically specific. It's not just an economic shakedown. Well, yeah, I think-
0: and- yeah go on, go on, Alex. I oh, oh- I was going to say that, in fact, you know, I found that side of things, you know, on the side of the PMC, that it doesn't, uh, as Phil said, you know, it doesn't directly map on to an, an economic project, um, or the, you know, narrow defense of their economic interests. On the other side of it, it leaves a question mark. And that is specifically the, whether it is a truly necessarily working class character, because it's important to remember that you know, in the 90s and 2000s you know conservatives would you know still kind of during peak neoliberalism conservatives would also target the state apparatus state bureaucracy and say that it it was too you know too heavy the top of the state was too heavy and that you needed to cut all these jobs and so on. And that was a politics which was um, supported by... Yeah, but they upper, were cutting upper, nurses. Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on, upper middle they class.
1: cutting communication consultants. It was cutting well, nurses as well. Whereas yes, Malcolm I, is very... He's not committed yeah. to cutting state resources, but to peeling off a very specific layer of state functionaries.
0: I, I get that, but I, but I wonder whether there isn't a certain, you know, uh, division here be, what, that it ends up being tacitly created between, like, uh, you know, Staatsvolk and Marktvolk, you know, state people and and uh, market people. So of those who are all in the private sector or exposed to the market, whether they're workers or exploit, who are exploited or small business owners on the one hand, and on the other hand, the PMC. Um, that that's, that's something which I would have liked to ask him, you know, further to, to elaborate on that. Like, how does this sort of politics, why is it necessarily working class and not itself just a different sort of cross-class coalition. Well, yeah, no, potentially a good, a good point. I think just- Sorry, and and that just relates to the culture war point, because he's insistent that it's not, you know, that it's not a culture war. Um, But insofar as it is kind of cross-class, there's the sort of animus against the PMC and the wokeness and whatever, which, you know, I share, um, ends up not necessarily delineating a genuinely and exclusively working class politics. Sorry, George, go ahead.
2: Yeah. No, 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 sorry. Just to um I guess it's important, and this is this is what I was going to say, that to distinguish the PMC from the transfer Act, because PMC is like obviously um a, a a category over which there's been been some debate. And I I actually, you know, do find it very useful in in many circumstances. But I think the whole point of this is that there's an like to go from the 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 virtue hoarding PMC to working out what the economic project of that group is that does require you know political analysis in you know in any given situation. But the transferry out this <clears throat> the idea that you do have a a group that's defined by their you know by their economic circumstances by their relationship to the you know to the means of production you could say or to the um, to the state like that's an important starting point that it is an economic it's an economic group and maybe then therefore it is much smaller than the PMC and you do yeah. have a more de- yeah. delineated. Group, But you're certainly able to make the case unequivocally, pretty much, that they're not productive, that they are, you know, there's a material um, conflict of interest between working class people, productive workers and the transferiat. So I think it's, you know, it is it is worth just making that that point that there's you don't want to kind of get get bogged down in the terminology, but certainly the transferiat and the, the PMC might in many cases describe similar or the same groups but i think it's you know that's one of the things to, to take really seriously is how do you start no but to articulate I the economic basis of this this group because then you can i, I do take your point though it, uh, being against that group you can be against it from the p- 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 from the perspective of the capitalist or the or the or the worker right you, you don't ha- you just you're trying to reduce that overhead or that kind of um that cost and it's there's then a further question how that uh oh, maybe... cost saving is distributed is uh is, maybe uh, there are yeah.
1: alliances maybe there are alliances to be made then if that is um you know if that is essentially malcolm's project um and he's you know politically he thinks that's the most immediate political task um you know perhaps there are alliances to be made for that kind of political project i'm not i'm not committing one way or the other and raising it i suppose because i think it's worth trying to be as politically clear as we possibly can about um the new, you know, how, um, how working class politics might reemerge in the contemporary context. The other thing I would say is, I was, um, or that I would raise, I suppose, is I was, I was really struck by what he was talking. I mean, I would have been curious to hear more about the politics of um controlled migration in the swedish context in the aftermath of uh, because sweden was so important in the during the refugee migrant crisis of the syrian civil war from 2015 to 2018 and i was really um taken aback at um malcolm talking about the you know the frankness with which he talked about the kinds of social problems that have come with it Um, because some of this was picked up in the right-wing press here in in Britain, and it was difficult to see how much of it was scaremongering, you know, and how much of it was um, authentic and genuine. But what he describes about ethnic, you know, that there is an ethnic animus to torture videos on TikTok with um, kids, you know, and um, I mean, that's just, I mean, that was just hideous. So I would have been curious to, I would have been curious to hear more about that politics as well.
0: Yeah, in fact, it actually did remind me of the of the Swedish film play by uh, Ruben Oestland, which came out in, in 2011, where there's a group of black boys who rob a um, group, smaller group of white boys. And, um, it would, you know, you can already see this sort of playing out. And that was already, you know, very much before the the migrant crisis, it's actually worth watching that film uh, in light of that discussion. Um, I just wanted to make another quick point. I mean, one in response to George, I think it's right to, to make the distinction between the transfer and the PMC because I've made this point before, but the PMC, I would, I would suggest that the bulk of it, the majority might be a small majority of the PMC, but it might even be larger than that depending on the context, is based in the private sector. It's not a transfer period. It's not dependent on patronage by billionaires donating to NGOs or um, you know, dependent on the state, whether you know at a kind of national or local level most of the PMC is, you know, salespeople in large corporations. Um, And so I think it's worth distinguishing those two. Incidentally, you know, those salespeople, for example, to take the, to take the example, um, working in a large corporation might be quite socially liberal. They might be kind of become quite woke recently, but it doesn't, but it doesn't mean that they define themselves as socialists or see themselves as on the left necessarily. So I think it's worth kind of just being clear about that and Malcolm's um, targeting specifically the transfer rate, I think is much more useful than just saying, well, you know, we're against the PMC. Um, one, one final thing, I mean, that I wanted to say, because I've been critical, but I i, I was, I, I really liked listening to the interview. Um, I wanted to echo what Phil said in terms of Malcolm's seriousness. I thought the aspect on barriers to entry to the um to to the party, really distinguished the Odebrecht Party from most populist initiatives, which are precisely about anybody can join, it's a free for all, there's no cost to entry or exit. Um, And this was, you know, really about forming a cadre. So I, I was very impressed by that. And another thing related to that is that he finished, I think, towards the end saying, you know, this was like the first time I finally taste winning, right. And most populist projects are also defined to a certain extent by their, by their opportunism, by their political opportunism. And I don't think that was the case here. So, you know, sometimes, you know, populists might say, yeah, I'm finally tasting winning. And it's like, yeah, just because you're chasing whatever is the latest thing and following media outrage, and then you get media traction, but you don't advance any kind of radical politics in doing so. And that didn't
2: seem to be the case here. Um, So I, I was impressed by that. No, I think it's a very good point. And the, you know, I think one of the limitations of of populism, at least in the British case and many others, is is precisely that um inability to to actually produce a representative institution, an institution which is not just short a short circuited between what mm. is it, the, the lead the the hyper leader and the base. So like people will you know, the the members will pay their their dues, but then there's no internal party democracy, there's no um, there's no representation of social interest. It's just a a platform for <clears throat> for a populist leader, and that's clearly not the you know not not the project here. So I think that that I mean may, maybe then there's a there's a sort of a question as to how this this model fits in with other sorts of um, did well in contradistinction to other digital parties or other sorts of populist parties. And I think for that reason it's it is you know it is more interesting because there is an attempt to <clears throat> to kind of look back at some of the the, the classic aspects of political parties, um, you know, particularly in certain traditions and and then work out what they would would look like today, how you can mobilise people, what are the barriers to entry, the tests you, you need to do. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's, we haven't talked about political organisation that much um, on, on this podcast, but like this was something which previously socialists were pretty interested in. You know, it's obviously a sign of the times to a certain extent, I'm not talking about it.
0: All right. Very good. Uh, Should we leave that here? Uh, We'll be back with more of these in uh, an indefined future. Again, we'll be talking to people who are out doing things. Um, And that is uh, this this occasional series, Populist Interventions. Uh, That's it for now. Uh, We hope you enjoyed it. Let us know what you think. Make sure uh, you follow us on social media, tell your friends about BungaCast, and we will see you next time. Catch you later. Bye-bye.